We are concluding a teaching part of this series uh, on a study of Revelation, and, and uh, it's unfair to call it a study because it's not actually a study as much as it is was we want you to be able to read, approach, and study the book of Revelation as you would any other book in any other piece of scripture, any other book of the Bible. Uh, we want you to have the right approach to be able to approach it and study it on your own. Um, and, and from a church perspective, we really are giving an overview. We're giving, doing our very best to kind of give you the tools necessary, which is why you got another uh, cheat sheet in your, um, in your seats today. If you're online, there's a link. You can get that uh, cheat sheet as well. I, I want to make sure you guys had it too uh, in the description uh, or in one of the comments. But this is for you. Again, this is, this, uh, we, we want to do about the best we can to teach it, but uh, we want you to be able to have the freedom to be able to go into this and study this on your own. Now, Revelation is a part of a bigger kind of idea and a bigger form of study in terms of scripture. And we've been teaching you this over the last few weeks called eschatology. Everybody say that word out loud with me. You ready? Eschatology. You guys are doing so great. Everybody knows what the word is now, right? A belief concerning death and the end of the world and ultimately the destination of mankind, specifically any of various Christian doctrines concerning the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the last judgment. And we've been telling you that Revelation is not all-encompassing in terms of eschatology because there's so much scripture that actually talks about the second coming of Christ, even more than what was talked about in terms of the first coming of Christ, that it's a big part of the study. But Revelation is so driven by the end times, by sort of the vision that John gets of what's going to happen at the end, um, that we had to kind of talk about why Revelation is part of eschatology. It's not the fullness of, but it's part of it. And uh, we're hopefully going to be offering uh, the opportunity for another class, another group uh, to study it in the fall. And we'll be getting your interest over the next several weeks uh, into the fall for that. Um, we gave this to you the first week, just as an overview of breaking up Revelation and understanding that it is from Revelations chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of us, it's not how we play into the story, even though we're going to talk more about that today. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's ways in which Jesus is revealed in the end times as John gets these visions of how Jesus is revealed uh, to us. Um, this week, we are going to be focusing a lot more on the last two, which is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the bridegroom, because we are the bride. And again, last week, I told you that as we go through these big chunks of Scripture, it feels a little bit, it's going, to feel, it's going to feel a little bit like I'm one of those tour guides, you know what I'm talking about, one of those tour guides that's just like, you know, isn't this interesting over here? Uh-huh, and we're walking, and we're walking, right? Isn't this great? Yeah, uh-huh, and we're walking, you know? And, and the one thing I'm going to point to, you're going to go like, oh my goodness, that's what I wanted to talk about. Can't we stay here? No. All right, so we're going to do that next week, all right? So, you know, put it in your questions, put it in, text it to us. I want to know more about this thing. I want to talk more about this thing. And we will do that next week. But the sooner you come to understand that that's probably the way it's going to feel for many of you, especially if this is new to you, um, I want to make sure you know that so you can ask those questions and then you can hopefully either hear us or tune in next week to, uh, or be back to be a part of that discussion. Last week we covered so much, and I'm going to give you a quick brief recap um, because it's where we kind of jump off the diving board today uh, into the context. We talked about the righteous judge, Jesus as the righteous judge, and the judgments along with the characters that we see in John's vision, right? 
There are seals on a scroll. There are trumpets. Um, uh, as each one sounds, something different happens. There are bull judgments called the bulls, where the bulls are poured out, where the wrath of God is poured out. There are characters that we want to make sure you are aware of. We talked about the dragon. We talked about the woman in terms of the Jewish people and, and Christ being born of those people. And we talked about the beast from the ocean or beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, um, how that kind of creates this unholy trinity, if you will, of the Antichrist and the false prophet as it's described and as it's uh, been kind of theologically pinned and things like that. And we talked a lot about that last week, okay? We also kind of talked a little bit about the two prophets and all of these things. These are things you're going to hear today, um, but I just want you to know we, we really discussed those last week and read the scriptures that have a lot to do with those uh, last week. But we, we kind of concluded with the bowls, not really concluded, but got right near the end. And now today we're going to jump right in to the Battle of Armageddon. The, uh, the fall of Babylon, which we talked about. Babylon was re referred to as symbolization of the, of the greatest of man's civilizations, the greatest of man's cities, uh, so to speak, in terms of a physical place. Um, Babylon was also described as a prostitute. Um, and, and, you know, this whole, I think it was chapter 17, describes the whole thing. So you can go back and read that. Uh, so it's often, Babylon is referred to as a her for that reason. Okay, so it kind of connects those two. Um, but here is where we jump off today, the Battle of Armageddon and the fall of Babylon. And this picks up where we left off last week. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and it dried up so that the kings from the east could then march their armies towards the west without hindrance. And then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. This, again, is sort of that unholy trinity and it says, and they are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out, go out to all the rulers of the world and gather them for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day of the God Almighty. And then this is a verse, we're going to come back to this, but this is a verse that just seems to be thrown into the middle of John's vision. This is, if you were reading your Bible, this would be in red letters. This is from Jesus, but it's thrown right in here. Look, I will come as un unexpectedly as a thief. And blessed are all of you, or blessed are all of you who are watching for me, who keep their clothes ready so they do not have to walk around naked and ashamed. So if you sleep in pajamas, you're set, okay? You, you're in good shape, all right? Unlike the rest of you, all right? But notice how that's just thrown in the middle of these verses of this vision that John's writing down, and then, and then it just goes back to the story. And these demonic spirits, they were the ones that gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name, Armageddon. You've probably definitely heard uh, that before. Um, Armageddon and what happens in Armageddon, as you read, as we continue to read, um, it's, it's less chronological. Again, you're going to have a hard time with the timing of things, primarily because God exists outside of time, and we're the ones who try to figure out things in time, and he's giving John kind of these visions. And so you have to understand that the certain things, although they will, sometimes they will just say this happens and then this happens, you can trust that that's a, a, a chronological, best we're going to get in terms of chronological understanding. Um, but sometimes they're just details and descriptions of what's happening. Just like I explained the characters last week, these are the characters that are at work the whole time. Um, the, we're going to read some details, especially about what's called the day of the Lord. 
Okay? This is what's known in Scripture as the day of the Lord. This is Christ's return, physical return to earth. And that happens, that the Battle of Armageddon, Babylon falling, like all this is happening in this day of the Lord. This is how the verse, uh, chapter 16 uh, looks at this, and then we're going to read a few more references uh, to this timing of the day of the Lord. It says, The seventh angel then poured his bowl out in the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne of the temple, saying, It is finished. Very reminiscent of Jesus' final words. Then thunder crashed and rolled and lightning flashed, and the great earthquake struck, the worst uh, scene since the people were on this earth. We talked about that last week, this horrible thing. And then it goes on to say that the great city of Babylon split into three sections. And the cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins and made her drink the cup that is filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. Now, just a reminder, I know I have to say this kind of every week, but just a reminder because many, many people who approach the book of Revelations, who start reading or hearing about the judgments of God, um, can begin to, to see them through the lens of cruelty. You can, you, know, you can read it sometimes and see God's judgments, especially when you start talking about the bowls of his wrath being poured out. You, you know, some people just assume, like, oh my goodness, like how, could, how could God do that? How could the God that you maybe came to know, the God that, you know, the, 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 the Jesus that would never harm anyone, and this, how could that happen? You can see it as cruelty. And here's the problem. The reason that we think that, or the reason that people approach it that way, is because we assume that, his, that, that, that somehow his holy restraint of judgment on the earth is somehow we've assumed that it's an affirmation or a confirmation or condoning that life is okay the way it is. People assume that like just because God didn't step in immediately and stop slavery that God was okay with slavery. That because God didn't step in immediately and solve problems of children's, you know, dying young and hunger, that, that, that God's okay with that. He, that he's okay with the injustice, that he's okay with the sin, that he's okay with what's happening in the world. And you have to, we're going to walk through this all the way to the end today. We can never assume that just because he didn't step in in that moment, or at least in a way that we could see in the way that it's going to be poured out here, that it had nothing to do with whether or not he is going to judge at all. That his holy restraint has kept him from, from, from that decimation of judgment that is coming. When he says it's finished, <laughs> it's finished. As we're going to read here, even, the, even this quote-unquote battle of Armageddon isn't much of a battle. right? The fall of Babylon is, is just nations and cities just falling into rubble. Here we'll go to uh, chapter 18. Where a mighty angel picks up a boulder the size of a huge millstone, he throws it into the ocean, and he basically says this, because he, he wants people to understand what's going to happen to the greatest thing man has ever achieved. You know, the, take, take all the civilizations of the world and make it the greatest city, the greatest civilization. That's his reference to Babylon. And he says, look, just like this, the great city of Babylon is going to be thrown down with violence, and you'll never be found again. He goes on to say, the sound of harps and singers and flutes and trumpets will never be heard from you again. No craftsman, no trades will ever be found in you again. The sound of the mill won't ever be heard in you again. 
The light of the lamp will never shine in you again. The happy voices of brides and grooms will never be heard in you again. For your merchants were the greatest in the world, and you deceived the nations with your sorceries. Your streets flow with the blood of prophets and God's holy people, and the blood of the people slaughtered all over the world. As great as mankind's achievements have ever been, as great as the, as great as the greatest city, quote-unquote, civilization that the, he refers to here of Babylon, as great as it might look and seem on the outside, this angel throws a boulder in the ocean and says, yeah, that's what's going to happen to Babylon, to your arts, to your trade, to everything that you took pride into, everything that's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be thrown in the ocean and forgotten about as simply as that. It goes on in chapter 20. Again, or 19, kind of revealing what this looks like. And this is the description we get specifically of Jesus seeing the heaven, uh, heavens open and the white horse was standing there and the rider who's named faithful and true for he judges fairly oh, and wages a righteous war. His eyes were flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except for himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and the title of that was the word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod and he will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe and at his thigh was written the title King of Kings, of all kings, sorry, and Lord of all lords. If you skip down to verse 19, it talks about this battle. He says, I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on his horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast. And all who worshiped his statue, both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And then it goes on to say that the entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on dead bodies. You wonder why Hallmark doesn't use Revelation <laughs> more often, right? I mean, this is, I don't know how we call it a battle, other than the men and, and women of earth kind of rise up for a battle. But in terms of John's vision, it's not much of a battle at all. It's the coming of Christ. It's the day of the Lord. It's when Babylon is going to be shattered and tossed away. It's when Jesus comes in his fullness of his glory and he righteously judges all those who oppose him. In a very swift you know, using that sword that comes out of us just strikes down the nations. Now, many people, usually by the Battle of Armageddon, okay, usually by the Battle of Armageddon, if not beforehand, I mean, you guys have already been sending me in this question over the last two weeks, so I know where most of your mind is, right? It's like, listen, I, I may not have even been raised in church, but my grandma said a few things, and I knew of a couple things, and all I know is, aren't Christians supposed to be out of here? Right? Like, when does that happen? Right? This is the one we keep getting in, in, our, in our questions and answers. When is the rapture? All right? 
When is it? Number one, it's hard because you can't find rapture in Scripture, so that makes it even more difficult, right? You search rapture on your, on your Bible app or your Google, and it doesn't show you anything. Well, let me tell you not just when it is, but what it is and why that term is used so often. And, and, and the when is the thing that sometimes people disagree about. Matter of fact, this is why I gave you guys uh, the cheat sheet you have. You want to go ahead and pull it up. I give you, I, I grew up only kind of being aware of about three views on when rapture would occur. Uh, after studying some of Dan's notes, I found one that I actually aligned pretty closely with. And then I found one that I had never heard of before, and it sounds as crazy as all get out to me. But I'm going to give it to you anyway, okay? I just want you to know what it is. But there are views. Now, I want you to understand, Christians do not, disagree, do, do not argue of whether or not there will be a rapture. They just argue about when. Everybody nod your head with me? Okay? So just understand, that's why I'm giving you the views. Some people have asked me, what's Matt's, what's Matt's view? Not going to tell you today. You have to come back next week. All right? I'll tell you where I land next week. But, but people want to know, like, like, well, when is this thing, right? First of all, the rapture comes from uh, kind of the root of a Latin word uh, in this scripture, 1 Thessalonians. Let's go to the scripture real quick. Together with them, we read this the first week, by the way. <coughs> we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up. And that's that, that um, uh, rapi uh, rapio, I think it's the Latin it's, it's where rapture comes from. We're going to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Depending on your tradition of how you're raised and how it was taught to you, the visuals are kind of all through Scripture. There's an understanding. There's also an understanding that God's people may not be around for the whole tribulation. Again, that goes back to some of the, some of the views. And at some point, God's going to spare um, God's people. Like at some point, God's going to remove us from sort of that, that destruction and decimation and all that kind of thing. So uh, if you go to, this is actually Jesus' words. I mean, I'm just going to give you some, some of what Jesus said because he says, unless the time of calamity is shortened, this is Jesus talking about the end times, talking about the end, uh, not a single person is going to survive it, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. So this is Jesus saying that. I, I can't tell you what it means, I just know that that's what he said. And the picture that he gives is like the days of Noah, okay? Talking about like nobody knew when it was going to happen until the rain started, right? Like nobody knew. They were just kind of going about their day. And the description that Jesus gives is like, look, two men are going to be working together in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One is going to be taken and the other is going to be left. Even Jesus describing something in terms of what we would call rapture and what we would call kind of that being caught up, all right? Now, if you look at your cheat sheet, I give you, I give you all five. Well, I don't really explain the fifth one. I give you four. Part of that is because if you were raised in kind of, I would say, maybe we're from a Baptist uh, traditional culture, you probably have heard pre-tribulation or pre-trib. It's kind of the short form for it. Um, that, that really it's going to occur before the beginning of the seven-year trial period. You can read some of this um, before the seventh week of Daniel. Daniel's, you know, Daniel's a little bit harder to read if I told you about that a few weeks ago. It's the Jewish calendar, so it's a little bit different. It's about 62 sevenths and seven sevens. And do the math or go to Dan's class, and he will help you understand what that means. But the seventh week of Daniel is supposed to be this tribulation time, 
okay? Now, what they say is that, well, before that happens, pre-tribulation says God's going to come us, come and get us and snatch us on up out of here. That's what pre-trib or pre-tribulation believe in terms of rapture. Now, the one that I had no idea, I'd never heard of it before, was called partial rapture, which happens about the same time. But because of all the scripture that sort of basically says you need to be watchful, you need to be watching, you need to be ready, you need to be prepared, there is a partial rapture view that says that only the unwatchful will have to remain and go through the tribulation. Okay? I don't know if you've ever heard that before. That's, that is a theory, that's a view on, you know, in terms of scripturally, a view on the rapture, when it will happen and who it's going to happen to. There's mid-tribulation rapture, which means that it's going to come uh, before that three and a half year period of time, the things we read about last week, the seals, the trumpets, um, the uh, bulls, and things like that. There is a pre-wrath rapture, which is another one that I was introduced to, but to be honest, I, I kind of understand it. It's the idea that there will be some tribulation that all the church goes through, but before the bowls, specifically, before the bowl judgments, that is when we are taken. And again, I, I have a hard time with the timing of it as well, because it's hard to figure out chronologically when and what things are going to happen when. And then there's post-tribulation rapture. Meaning, and, I, and some call it even no rapture, just because it's like, well, when Jesus comes, right, is when we go. Like when Jesus shows up on the day of the Lord is when we are going to be raptured. Now, again, I just encourage you to understand, I want you to know all of these views, because I don't know where you stand and where you sit. I, I want you to have a reason for what you believe and where you land, um, I want it to be a biblical reason, meaning that you actually do some study, not just what grandma said, not just what a pastor said or taught you, but that you actually do some study on your own to see how, how do you, what, what do you really think is it going to look like? And then just be okay with landing there. You may not even agree with your mom or dad. You may not agree with your siblings. That's okay. Just, just know why you're there. Let me go ahead and tell you, the worst reasoning, however, the worst reasoning I've ever heard people talk about rapture is because God doesn't want anything bad to happen to his people, which is so bad theology. Okay, you guys with me? If that's, I mean, there's stuff bad happening to his people all the time, all over the world, today, right now, in this moment. There's horrendous things and persecutions and things happening to God's people. So, so please don't allow your one single idea around rapture that God's going to snatch us all up in a nice, cozy, comfortable blanket in a cloud because he doesn't want his poor, innocent little children to, to experience any of God's wrath. I don't, don't go at that approach. Okay? That's, a hor that's horrible theology. Doesn't mean you don't land in pre-trib or anything like that or pre-wrath. Like, that's fine. Just don't use that as your approach. Because that's definitely not what we see. It's not what we see in Revelation. Every single time that John has to say to the church, you're going to have to endure this. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to endure persecution. There's no reason for John to say that. I mean, when he wrote this, the church was under incredible persecution and had been from Nero and, and Damascus. And, I mean, from the Roman Empire, like they were already experiencing it. So just please don't, don't use that as your approach. But, you know, figure it out. Because I'm telling you, you engage this conversation with anybody, especially in terms of eschatology, they're going to they're gonna probably start the conversation with when they believe the rapture is going to happen. 
and then discuss everything else accordingly. So I think it's important. I think it's important for you to know those views and for you to study it on your own. Now, in addition to this day of the Lord, in terms of, uh, of what's happened in the battle of Armageddon, I want you to see what also happens as we go into Satan, what is his destiny in the bottomless pit, and then this thousand-year reign of Christ. Let's go. This is in chapter 20. I saw the angel come down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. Now, this bottomless pit has been mentioned before. It's where the poisonous locusts came from. It's a few other things that, that people have guessed what that is, but this, is, this has been mentioned before. He has a heavy chain in his hand. It says that he seized the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, Satan, and he bound him in chains for a thousand years. An angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut up and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand year, uh, years was finished. Afterwards, he's going to be released for a little while. He must be released. This is John receiving this in his vision. And it says, Then I saw thrones and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And then I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. Well, they all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Keep going. Skip down. It says, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back into life until the thousand years has ended. This is important because it's going to judge how you read some of these timing things, okay? But this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Again, in the study of eschatology, this is going to come up pretty often in terms of this thousand-year reign. This, this, they call it the millennium reign of Christ. Now, there are also different views about the millennial reign, about the millennialism, if it kind of what it's called. No, don't, don't confuse it with millennials, okay, the millennial generation. Don't confuse that. This is the millennial reign, this thousand-year reign, this thousand years that, the, that Satan is, is trapped in this bottomless pit. As a matter of fact, on the bottom again, I gave you sort of the three most prominent millennium uh, views. Premillennialism, right? Just kind of read it straight in logical, or uh, not logical, chronological order right? Christ returns before the millennium, and he rules during that period of time. Amillennialism is a view that the millennium is not a true thousand years. And understand, when you start getting into whole, when you start getting into timing, there's a lot of scriptural arguments to and for and those kind of things, but you got to be careful. But it refers to the period now in progress, meaning that they believe the millennial is right now, and that Christ is going to come and sort of end it all at some point uh, and rule. But Christ is actually ruling now. He was ruling since he, he defeated death in the grave and that his rule is actually now. Postmillennialism asserts that there's going to be a period of grace and peace when the whole gospel is spread through the whole world and Christ reigns uh, spiritually through his people. And then after this thousand years, right, then he's going to return and end it. And it is finished. Again, I'm not going to... I'm going to argue 
one way or the other, I just want you to be able to know and see that there are views that, that again, outside of, maybe just outside of Revelation, but just in terms of the eschatological conversation, um, you're going to run into people that have these different views. The amillennial view, the premillennial view, the postmillennial view. And that's okay. We're all going to be in heaven. We're all going to see Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, just everybody smile. Just smile with me for a minute. Don't get frustrated about it. Don't, don't get frustrated. If I'm wrong or you're wrong, we're going to high five on the way up anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's just the way it is. I'm not saying, don't hear me say it doesn't matter. Just hear me say, don't let it be something that divides you. Don't let it be something that you argue about because ultimately you're coming, hopefully you're coming to these conclusions through scripture and through the interpretation of the word of God. Now, I'll go ahead and read just the next section, which I'll be honest, is the one that probably trips me up the most. And this is, when the thousand years have come to an end, Satan's going to be let out of his prison. And it says he's going to go out and deceive the nations, called Gog and Magog, in every corner of the earth, and he will gather them together for battle. A mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. Another battle? And then, and then it says, when I saw him go up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded by God's people and his beloved city, but then fire from heaven came down and attacked the armies and consumed them. Again, not much of a battle at all, right? And then the devil, who had then deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet, and there they will be tormented, day and night, forever and ever. And guys, this is where a lot of the amillennial and postmillennial views come from. Because, you know, premillennial views, when I was growing up, just assumed that the thousand-year reign of Christ was it. The Battle of Armageddon was it. Matter of fact, you'll talk to some people, and they'll talk about the Battle of Armageddon, and they'll mention Gog and Magog. And sometimes I'll just be like, uh, that's after that, according to just what John's revelation says. That's actually when the, the, the devil, the serpent, comes back. And to be honest, who's he deceiving? I thought everybody was dead. Is your brain hurt yet? Now, there's an answer to all this, which is why we want you to continue to read. But that, that's just to set you up to understand this millennial period of time and even what's coming after it. And here's what's really coming after. This is the part that I really want you to focus on. This is the judgment of the lost and unbelievers. It goes on to say this, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it and the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found nowhere to hide, no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And when the books were opened, including the book of life, the dead were then judged according to what they had done and according to the books. Now, I want you to notice that this is uh, what's called the great white throne judgment, and everyone who is going to be judged is dead. They've already experienced a first death. Everybody nod your head if you're with me. They're all, they're all dead. Okay? Whether it was Armageddon, whether it was the one after that, whether it was the one before that, whether it was in the 1200s, I don't know. They're all dead. They're all going to be judged at this moment. The sea is going to give up its dead, uh, and the death and the grave are going to give up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. And death and the grave were then thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. So anytime you hear them talk about the second death, this is it. 
The lake of fire, this sort of judgment of all things, this is considered, every time you read Revelation or you see it somewhere else, this is considered the second death. And anyone whose name was not found, recorded in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I don't have time to teach on all of it today, but I did give you again on the back side of your cheat sheet, I wanted you to understand that sometimes when you read the New Testament, you see a lot about, uh, you see references to the judgment that's going to, to come, that, that there will be judgments happening. But not every single time is he talking about the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. There's also called the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes referred to as the Bema seat. And there is a judgment, just hear me, there is a judgment for believers, all right, this is what the, the Bible tells us, there's a judgment for believers, where believers are going to be judged, not on whether or not they're a believer or not. They're going to be judged on their actions, their motives, their deeds, what they've done, uh, the motives by which they've done things. There's so much scripture talking about motives will be tested and they'll be, the, you know, only the gold will come up and the rest of the straw will burn away. Does that make sense? Like there's, there is a judgment for believers and these are where the crowns and the rewards and the things come and we place those at his feet. But the great white throne judgment, which is what we're reading now, is for unbelievers, it's for the lost. It's for anyone, and I love this, the fact that the book is like, it's just for anybody whose name is not recorded in the Lamb's book of life, who have not asked Jesus to be their Savior, who have not put their faith and hope and trust in Christ as their absolute hope. That's, that's everybody he's talking about in this time. And then as you continue to read Revelation, and then again, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a few verses next week still, but as you continue to read Revelation, this is when, oh man, this is when it really starts to come together, because you start to see heaven, and you start to see a new heaven and a new earth, and he actually talks about new Jerusalem. Let me go ahead and read you some of this. I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth disappeared, and the sea was gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, talking to John, write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Skip down to verse 12. It says that talking more about this, the city was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on those gates. I just love the significance that that means something. It's going to continue to mean something for eternity as well as there were three gates on each side, east, north, west, south, or south and west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were written the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? Again, I don't, I don't know the significance of the 24 elders. I can't tell you for sure, but I can tell you for sure the New Jerusalem represents the beautiful grafting of the, of, of the nation of Israel and, and God's people, followers of the way, the church. That's a beautiful thing to me. That's going to be represented even in this new city when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. He goes on to say, I saw no temple. This is down to 22. I saw no temple in the city. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need for sun or moon 
For the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. And the gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there's no night there. And it says the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've spent the last three or four weeks, as I told you to do, reading Revelation along with this series, you've been here for at least the last couple weeks, when you spend the majority of the time in the book of Revelation reading about all the horribleness that is to come, okay, all the famine, all the disease, all the, all the hurting, all the persecution, all the martyrs, all the death, right, all the beheadings, all poisonous locusts, right, the fire, a third of the light goes away, like, when you start reading about all of this horribleness, it's such a breath of fresh air to start reading about heaven, to start reading about the new Jerusalem, to start reading about our home being with God and God's going to be there and God's going to be with his people. And listen, I know that you've you, you got to live a little while to get there. I told you before, when you're young, God coming back feels like an interruption, right? Like I haven't gotten to experience everything yet. But once you live a little while longer... All you can think sometimes when you read this is, what are you waiting for? You know? Like you start reading the Lord's Prayer and you start meaning it differently. Like, oh God, just bring it. Your kingdom come, man. You know? On earth as it is in heaven. I'd rather be in heaven. What are you waiting for? And, 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 and I've shared this with you over the last few weeks, but just because I believe this is the healthiest approach to, to even eschatology or even just reading the book of Revelation is to constantly remember the mercy of God, the grace of God that exists. Even when his wrath is being poured out, there was a time, there was a portion of time in which his grace was still remains. The two prophets come to declare the glory of God. People have the opportunity, even in those moments, to give glory to God, even though John gets the vision that most of them don't. They curse God. They get angry with him. But if you have ever had a conversation with somebody who was raised in church, they're not a, maybe a believer, maybe they say they're a believer, but they're not living, there's no fruit of the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life, and maybe you get into a conversation that does come up about the end times, and you get into the conversation about injustices, and you get into the conversation about persecution, and you get into the conversation about what is God waiting for? I think Peter... The disciple of Jesus said it best. Peter said it best when he was um, writing to the church. And he was talking about the day of the Lord coming. But he addresses that same question, especially when it comes to the, the skepticism or even the, just the, the naive belief that just because God hasn't come yet that he's okay with things right now. It's just not true. Here's what Peter says to the church. I want to remind you that in the last days, look, scoffers are going to come. They're going to mock the truth, and they're going to follow their own desires. We already know that, right? That's been happening since Jesus left. But they're going to say, hey, what happened to that promise that Jesus is coming again? Peter lived in a time in which 
Maybe people had even heard Jesus say these things. And before the times of our ancestors, you know what? Everything has kind of remained the same since the world was first created. Nothing's really changed. What's all this hope about? What's all this, what's all this talk, especially in the early church? Jesus is coming back. You know, they kind of thought he was going to get laundry and grab a bite to eat, you know? Come on, he's coming right back, everybody. And he says, there's going to be scoffers that come and say, hey, what, you know, what's going on? Like, it's, it's really not changed. And he says, you must not forget that one thing. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, if he would have just said one of these things, we would have a really cool algorithm to figure God out. <laughs> everybody with me? But because Peter says, well, he's both, then we just go, uh, we just throw the calculator away. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake, and I quite frankly read it like this. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. Just hear the heart of God that even though he gives John the vision that not everyone will repent, it does not change the heart of God that he wants everyone to have the chance to repent, to have the opportunity. It is for our sake. It is for your sake. That's why. He's being slow. Then he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come. I mean, Peter, again, is just helping the church understand. It's coming. As unexpectedly as a thief, the heavens are going to pass away with a terrible noise. The very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives we should live right? Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he's going to set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we're looking forward to a new heaven and new earth that he's promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Whenever you start to get that place in your own life or you're in that conversation, well, why isn't God, you know, doing something about that? Well, he's patient. This is the phrase I want to, this is the last verse I want you to see. It's, it's our Lord's patience that gives people, what's the words to read it out loud? Remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Just for a minute, before we pray, I want you to think about, I want you to think about that circle of yours, right? We talk about the top five in your circle, the people that are close to you but far from God. They're, they're in your life for some reason. They're, they're connected to you in some way. They're in your circle of influence and, and responsibility. And I want you to remember their names. You put their names to it. It is for Bill's sake so he has time to be saved. It is for my dad's sake, my estranged father who doesn't even want to talk to me. 
It's for his sake. Right? It's for my sister-in-law's sake. The one that openly mocks our faith. It's for her sake. It's for Shannon's sake that, that he's going to give time for her to be saved. Everybody with me? You've got to put those names to it. The people you're praying for. So that even when we read this, even when we study you know, eschatology, even when we really do do our best to kind of know the information that God has given us to know, it doesn't change anything in terms of every day when we wake up and we look forward to the new heavens and earth. And we, as with the wall says out there, we exist to humbly point everyone that we know to the absolute hope of Christ. Because it's the only hope that's going to remain. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you again for the book of Revelation. Even though the visions that John receives, God, I'm the first to admit, they're so weird to me sometimes. I get lost in them sometimes. I don't understand. God, you know how you wired me. I'm chronological anyway, and so I, I struggle with timing of things. I struggle with not knowing things, and you really, I mean, God, it's okay. You, you don't care if I don't know the things you don't want me to know. But God, I want to continue to come back to what I do know and thank you so much for so much of your word and so much of the, of the, of the writings of Paul and Peter and John that continue to point us back to the mission and the call. As we love those around us that you've called us to love the way you loved us and as you've called us to point them to your absolute hope. Because the day of the Lord is coming. And God, we want that to be something we know and, 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 and embrace, even though we don't understand the fullness of it. We want to embrace it and we want to prepare ourselves and to get an understanding that every day you don't come, it is for our sake. It is for their sake. It is for the time for people to be able to finally repent and to be saved. And for that, God, we are so thankful. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.